This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. Once the internet was a utopia, a new intellectual commons. Then it was a gold mine where massive new businesses would stake their claim and make fortunes unheard of in the history of civilization. For the past couple of years, we've been covering the internet as a swamp a convening ground for trolls and Nazis, a platform for disinformation and fake news, an impressive tool for fragmenting our national conversation so we can't even be sure that we and our neighbors are looking at the same world anymore. But before any of that, the Internet was a military project conceived and funded by some of the darker arms of the U.S. Armed Services, designed from its inception not just to enhance military communication in the atomic age, but also to conduct massive surveillance when the theater of war shifted from battlefields to jungle insurgencies. That is the broad arc of our next guest's new book, which traces the Internet's military entanglements from its origins straight through to some of the services today that promote themselves as the protectors of privacy. Yasha Levine is an investigative journalist who has spent years covering both the tech industry, its entanglements with the security state, and also post-Soviet Russia. His new book is Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. There's this kind of like common wisdom about how the Internet got started which is that the government wanted a communication system that would still work after a nuclear strike. And that's how it got the idea of a distributed network, where even if most of the nodes get knocked offline, the remaining ones are going to be able to talk to each other. But you trace a different route, which is that the military was also confronting the question of how you fight a guerrilla war, how you fight a counterinsurgency. Um, when the advent of the atomic age meant you didn't have big battlefields anymore. You had these kind of small proxy wars in places like Vietnam. What did surveillance have to do with that? Well, when you're dealing with an insurgency, right, um, the biggest problem with that uh, if you, from a military perspective is that, well, I mean, short of just wiping everybody out in the, the whole population of a country or, or, a, or a region that where the insurgency is taking place, you... Um, you're, you, it's very difficult to isolate, to find the enemy because the enemy is part of the civilian population. They're not wearing a uniform. They're not marching in formation. Uh, insurgencies take their strength from being coming out of p- local populations and being completely indistinguishable from them, and 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 getting cover from local populations which are frequently sympathetic to 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 the insurgents' uh, goals, and so. There's different ways of dealing with this. You know, you can do a mass terror, um, you know, campaign where you just terrorize everybody and you know herd everybody into like into camps and and try to sift things out. That that happened in Vietnam uh, and in other places. That technique is pretty brutal and it's been practiced you know, for probably for thousands of years, right? Um, but at the time, there was sort of a more of a I I, I guess you have a slightly more enlightened um, idea, you know, about how to manage that fight this war. Um, because computer computers were just coming online, and computers were just beginning to offer the ability to um, to interact with them on a, in a way that didn't involve having to you know feed punch cards into them. So America at the time in the 1950s began building this thing called Sage. It was the first um, early warning radar defense system, you know, designed to protect America from a nuclear attack by air. So if there was you know the Soviet Union tested this, an atomic weapon and it could deliver that weapon using an airplane, so you had to protect America from this threat. And so 
this system was created, it showed uh, a possibility, like a con proof of concept, is that you could have a computerized system that watched the world in real time and could track things moving, you know, in very complex um, um, system of surveillance that could track aircraft moving, that could figure out based on their vel velocity and based on their just characteristics of how they're moving, which, what kind of airplane they are. And you could predict even their future, uh, the future because it could plot a, you know, a vector and see where, the, where they'll be in half an hour, where they'll be in an hour. So it was the system of surveillance uh, restricted to airplanes, but out of that came the technology that would allow such a system to even be to, to, as a concept, but also the, 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 the rudimentary uh, elements of, of a computer workstation that you could feed information into. It, it would, you know, you could take data, it'll, it'll uh, show it to an analyst, an analyst can interact with it in, in a kind of a human, in a human manner. And um, Sage created the first, you know, like uh, almost computer workstation because it had a little screen, there are little dots on there. You could, there was a, even a rudimentary mouse that you, uh, they called it a light pen, which you touch the screen with, where, you know, and it opens up menus on the screen. And a lot of people who went on to work on the uh, ARPANET uh, program at ARPA uh, that started in 1962, cut their teeth on this kind of stuff, you know, uh, working on Sage at, at MIT. And so, so the idea is that you could fight this new kind of war and an insurgency uh, and a, gl a global insurgency with what they saw by having a better management system that, that where you could feed data into it about societies, about people, and figure out where is the problem and who is the problem. And then once you isolate the problem, you can uh, neutralize it just like you would for an enemy airplane. So the same way NORAD is trying to track uh, the threat of Soviet bombers moving across the North Atlantic. U.S. military forces in Vietnam are trying to surveil the movement of Viet Cong on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yes. I mean, that was one of the, an early project of that that's a kind of halfway between like a NORAD-style system, right, radar system, and something that the Internet is today. It's like you have actually are trying to track people. Yes. So, so they put uh, sensors on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, wireless sensors that would transmit to, a, to, these, um, to these antenna that would then transmit to a uh, control center, um, uh, that was powered by IBM computers, and then you could see, you know, if there's like seismic activity, if there's vibrations, that means there are probably trucks moving through the area. They even ha would have uh, sensors that could detect urine, the smell of urine. So it means that there are troops moving through there peeing, you know. There's like, microphones where you could detect if someone's speaking in the jungle, and so that way you could then call in a bomb bombing attack. And the people who were um, jetting this up for use in the theater of war in Vietnam were also at the same time specifically contemplating its use um, dealing with urban unrest in the United States with, with the riots of the late 1960s and early 70s. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the programs that... So ARPA was the center of counterinsurgency uh, research um, in the 1960s. And Explain what ARPA is. ARPA is, yeah, ARPA is the Pentagon R&D wing of, of the Pentagon. Um, is, uh, is, the, is, is a sort of advanced weapons R&D lab run by the Pentagon. We now call it DARPA. Um, and uh, was set up uh, after uh, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite, uh, and it was sort of set up uh, to bridge the technology gap and like the we advanced weaponry gap or the missile gap at the, the, at the time. They thought because America hadn't yet developed a, a ballistic missile that could um, deliver a nuclear warhead, uh, you know, from space. Uh, NASA took on a lot of the functions that that ARPA was supposed to have. But in the 1960s, after uh, John F. Kennedy came to power, ARPA was transformed into a counterinsurgency agency. So it was trying to develop new, way, new ways of fighting this new kind of war, this counterinsurgency war that was happening all around the world. 
And a lot of the proposals, if you read the proposals uh, for research projects, and um, at the time, all, make mention of that, yes, this is good for our, our efforts in Vietnam, but we can always apply the lessons learned here and the technology developed here uh, to deal with our problems back home. And so ARPA uh, de- began deploying the ARPANET, which is this decentralized uh, networking technology. In 1969, uh, it was the first node was connected uh, Stanford to uh, UCLA, and then it quickly expanded nationally. But student activists uh, and anti-war activists uh, were able to obtain proposals for some of the programs associated with ARPANET, and they start, began protesting it and calling attention to ARP, the ARPANET the same year that it was launched. Students for Democratic Society, in 1969, they, they launched this um, protest. Uh, they took over uh, buildings at MIT and at Harvard, and they were protesting what they saw as a surveillance network. They said if ARPANET was allowed to expand uh, nationally and globally, it would create a network of surveillance and, and a network of social control that uh, the U.S. military would use to dominate the world and to, to attack and to neutralize left-wing movements in, in, uh, in the third world and, um, and, and use it uh, domestically. So the, the point where it kind of sees mass adoption is the 1990s, and this is when we start to see commercialization of the Internet. I had just always kind of assumed that this was a good technology spreading itself, you know, moving, moving from the universities and elite businesses to popular use because it was getting cheaper, because it was getting more uh, accessible, and because people found it useful. But you point out in the book, uh, it took a deliberate effort by the government to privatize the infrastructure of the internet before mass adoption was possible. We're talking about you know ISPs and internet service providers that we use today, like Time Warner, um, AT and T, Verizon. And they their internet divisions actually are, come out of privatized components of uh, a network that the U.S. government built starting in the 1980s. And uh, it was done by the National Science Foundation, right? So the National Science Foundation was kind of tasked of building this a national network that the, the architecture of it is, is what the Internet looks like today. It has a na- there's a national, there was a national backbone and smaller regional providers that plugged into it. And it was tasked with building it, funding it, having the federal government fund it, and then when it was commercially viable to privatize the entire thing. And so that's exactly what it did. I guess my, my question is, is the government's interest at that point in doing this through privatization? Is that just about doing favors for well-connected telecom companies? Or is that about a belief that if you commercialize, if you privatize, you'll speed up adoption and penetration? Um, I think it was ideological, yeah. I think I think there was a definitely a belief that you, 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 the government can't possibly run this network, or manage it. I mean, how could you? I mean, this is, you have to remember this is the, the Reagan years and uh, at a time when deregulation and privatization was happening in every sector of society. And government was seen as something you know, like a dinosaur that had to be, that was on its way out and it would be replaced by, you know, private companies and the, and the private sector was obviously more efficient, obviously better at managing things, obviously better at delivering services to, to consumers and to people, right? Everybody in the National Science Foundation agreed that privatization was the way to go. Everyone in, in Congress believed that privatization was the way to go. Everyone in the industry, the telecommunications industry that was very much in, involved in this process, obviously wanted to, to be privatized. And Al Gore, you know, who's credited with creating the internet, and he did uh, introduce- by himself. Exactly. And he had, <laughs> he, had a, he had a role in it. I mean, he introduced legislation that helped fund some of the, um, some, some of the networking efforts that were part of the National Science Foundation. So, the, I mean, the privatization brings with it uh, the emergence of companies that are consumer companies, Right, they're not Silicon Valley companies. They're only working on government contracts anymore, and so the government, instead of building the tech or contracting 
with Silicon Valley firms to build the tech they want starts to play a financier role. It has its own venture capital arms. One that you profile is a CIA-backed investment firm called InQtel. Yeah. I mean, I'd even like to back up because uh, the government never really got out of the business. DARPA, which again, DARPA is, we, know, we call it DARPA now, but it used to be ARPA. I mean, they, they just added defense. Uh, on the, on the rest the of the acronym is Advanced Research Projects, Projects Agency. Agency. Yeah, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. It's the Pentagon R&D outfit uh, that created the internet in the 60s. Um, it continued to play a really massive role in, 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 in underwriting uh, research that would and um, research that would then become some companies. Some, in, in many cases, like Google came out of DARPA research. So Google Google search technology, what they called initially Backrub, <laughs> um, it came out of a Stanford research project uh, started by um, uh, Larry Page, that was financed by DARPA. And so it, it was a DARPA project, and actually also had funding from the FBI and um, the National Science Foundation. Um, to, to create digital libraries for the internet, like to find a way of organizing information on the internet, to, fi- to helping find stuff on the internet, which is chaotic. What they were calling digital libraries, we would now call a search index. Yes, a digital libraries. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it was just, Google was just one of the search engines that came out of that multi-university uh, uh, research project. Another one was called uh, Lycos. Uh, you might remember it from like way back in the day. It was also seeded by DARPA. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hilarious. I remember when there were multiple competing search engines. Exactly, and they were all kind of <laughs> equally crappy. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so, but the best search engines were the ones that came out of DARPA research because they had some real sort of thinking behind, you know, the engine that drove the the, the relevance engine, right? And so, Google, if you read Google's first p- paper that defines um, their search algorithm and first kind of outlines their strategy, you know, there's a big um, thank you note at the bottom, saying, thanking DARPA for providing the, re- the the money to fund this research. And so the government never really got out of the business of funding internet development. And, uh, and so, but there are other, there are other um, entities emerged uh, over time. One of them is InQtel, uh, the CIA venture capitalist, just down the street from Google, actually, um, in, uh, in Mountain View. And they, what they do is they identify startups, small companies that uh, are making products that would be in some way useful to the intelligence community. And so they have, would have an interest in seeing them succeed. And so they would, they could, they would come in and they would become, uh, they would become part owners of, of these companies. They would, uh, there would be a capital infusion. And then they would, of course, help guide the company. They'd, uh, you know, they'd have a, a hand in, in guiding the development and strategy um, that these small companies are following. And in the end, they'd, you know, those companies could go public or it could be bought by other companies. And the CIA would make a tidy profit and then use that money to you know, to finance other companies. Um, a good example of that, you know, now we're talking about Google, a, a good example of one of these companies is Keyhole. Keyhole um, was this uh, um, sort of 3D mapping um, startup um, that was eventually uh, purchased by Google and became Google Earth and, and, and the Google mapping software that we all use now in, in all, on all our devices. Keyhole was um, this small company that was kind of struggling, because, but it, was, it created these um, really cool maps that you could fly through. And so it, they built a small company that did that. And the Incutel was like, oh, this is really interesting because we could use that, this technology for operational purposes. Um, and as soon as, as Incutel came in and, and kind of brought it under the wing of the, of the intelligence community, it was deployed in Iraq. It was being used by armed forces in Iraq 
to map out um, you know, uh, battle plans. Then a year later, Google bought it. And Keyhole had all these contracts with intelligence agencies, with the CIA, with the National uh, Geospatial Agency, which is like the satellite um, uh, agency. It does satellite in- intelligence. Um, it had active military contracts. You know, It was a contractor. And Google bought that company and inherited all those contracts. And so then Google became a military contractor that was providing geospatial software, as they call it, geospatial visualization software for the U.S. government. Um, At the same time, Google was also contracted in another way, was selling search technology, its search technology to the NSA and to the CIA at the same time. So Google was already uh, also an intelligence and military contractor. Um, in the early 2000s. And so, but it just bought this company and it became part of Google and it has a dual use, obviously. We can use it to map stuff on our phone, and, but it also has an uh, intelligence and military function. Yeah, Ashley Levine, we only have a few minutes left, but there's one part of your book I want to make sure we get to. Um, you did a lot of very original reporting, uh, uncovered documents that have not been in the public anywhere up till this point, showing the government role in spreading technologies that are promoted as protecting the privacy of their users, possibly because what they accomplish is the opposite. Tell me what Tor is and what role the government has played in spreading it and why. Well, Tor is this thing that uh, people uh, uh, learned about probably most after Edward Snowden came came on the scene. And he said that Tor is this amazing uh, anonymity tool that allows you to hide uh, on the internet in plain sight and allows you to hide from government agencies. It helps uh, prevent anyone from tracking you online and, and it guarantees anonymity. It's short for the Onion Router. The Onion Router, Tor, yeah. And uh, it's uh, because it's supposed to hide your internet activity behind layers of anonymization like the layers of an onion. Yes, you you're basically are redirected into this parallel network and then you're bounced around from node to node, to node to the point where the first node doesn't know where the last what the last node knows. And so it's like a shell game almost, you know, with like uh, little cups and a little ball, you know, like you, you move this thing around enough times that it just sort of disappears and you don't know where it goes. It's the idea behind the Tor browser. Tor browser also under, underpins the dark web. It is the dark web. So uh, like dark web marketplaces like the Silk Road and uh, all the other clones that have appeared ever since the Silk Road was taken down, they run on, on, on in this cloud, in this sort of shell game cloud. So you can use the Tor browser to go into to, to go to these websites, but you don't actually know where they are physically located. So it, it, it disconnects the physical location from an internet address, which you can see the physical location of a server, I mean, where, they, where they're located, essentially. And you can see where, where everything is going, the source and destination of, of traffic. So it's supposed to guarantee you this protection from the government, from the NSA, from internet service providers and things like that. And it's promoted by Edward Snowden. But as I've sort of reported over the past couple of years, and as I get really uh, specific in my book with new with new documents that I've uncovered through FOIA, is that the, the Tor project is a government tool. I mean, it's almost 100% funded by the U.S. government, and it has a couple of different elements of usefulness. On the one hand, it was created by the U.S. Navy to hide its own spies on the internet, so to give spies anonymity. And um, when you give spy, in order to give spies anonymity, you had to open up the whole system to everybody else so that it wouldn't be just spies using the onion router. Because if there's only 10 people on it and you know who those 10 people are, you know yeah, <laughs> who to direct so, your surveillance firepower at. Well, I mean, it's also like if you, if there's this, uh, because you can tell when someone's using the Tor, right? Because it has a certain traffic uh, signature. If it's only, you know, like government agency, government agents, you know, logging in from strange locations, you know, 
then it would be obvious that, okay, this is just the government anonymity system. You know, it's like the government VPN, right? But so in order to hide the government or government's role in it, you have to essentially open it up to everybody, to everybody, to as wide of a, of a set of users as possible. You know, if you want to have like uh, illegal, uh, illegal stuff happening on there, you want to have child porn on there, you want to be selling drugs on there, you want to have hackers use the system that are unaffiliated, let's say, to any kind of state enterprise. You want to have just regular people who are worried about their privacy using it. You know, and so you have just this busy, busy town square. And then when a spy goes into that town square, you know, they kind of hide in the crowd, right? Uh, they, they disappear. And so that's a, a useful uh, tool for uh, the government. And the government does use this f- f- to hide its identity. And in fact, Chelsea Manning, when she was in Iraq, she used Tor as part of her, her job um, uh, because her job was sort of basically monitoring uh, extremist websites and extremist forums. And in order to hide the fact that she's, you know, in the army, uh, and coming from an army IP address, she used Tor and then, you know, was hung out on those forums and, 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 and gathered intelligence, right? Um, so it's used by uh, the government for that purpose, and the FBI uses it in, in its investigations for the same thing. But then there was this other component to it, which is a bit more, um, uh, a bit more interesting, which is that the U.S. government also sees it as, as a tool to prevent countries like China and countries like Russia, increasingly in Iran, from exercising control over their own domestic internet space, right? So you create this tool to hide the activity of your own spies. To hide them better, you expand it to child porn traffickers and black marketeers and hackers of all stripes. And then to promote your national interests, you also promote it to dissident groups operating in every country that you want to undermine. Exactly, exactly. And um, and so, yes, and so you want to be able to, for people to organize, use Facebook to organize and use uh, platforms, social media platforms to organize political movements. And you want to make, let's say, Iran, make it very difficult for Iran to crack down to stop that organization that's happening online. And so you offer a tool like Tor that hides them from their own government and allows them to organize online, right? And so and makes uh, control of the Internet less effective for those, for those, for those countries. So that, that's another component that's very useful. And, and, of course, a third component that's complementary is that you convince people that people who have something to hide or people who are worried about privacy or, or you basically drive them into one tool and where they self-select themselves as, as people who worry about uh, maybe potentially doing something online that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's um, illegal or that's uh, problematic or that's somehow dangerous. And so you're, it's also a self-selection tool for, for, for activists and for, for, for journalists, uh, someone who um, has something to hide. You mean you take the entire set of people who are using Tor you subtract out the folks who are your spies or yeah. the dissidents that you're supportive of, and you know the rest are people who might deserve further scrutiny. Exactly. That's scary. It's a scary twist to end on. Yasha Levine, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Yasha Levine is an investigative journalist who has spent years covering both the tech industry, its entanglements with the national security state, and also post-Soviet Russia. His new book is Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards-Teeker, with help from Lucy Kang. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. 
We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.